The Minnesota Twins advance, but at least one player still elicits boos from various crowds. From SDPB Radio, today is Thursday, October 5th, and this is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, Frontline examines the legacy of the 2017 Houston Astros cheating scandal. Journalist Ben Ryder is with us for a look at the culture of winning and how technology got ahead of ethics in Major League Baseball. This is National Disability Employment Awareness Month. We'll talk about the power of a job for the employee and for a community. The Biden administration funnels billions into conservation programs. We'll ask what's ahead for South Dakota farmers and foresters. Plus, the South Dakota Symphony Orchestra returns to the stage. We'll preview opening night. We're broadcasting live from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. A last-minute compromise temporarily halted the looming government shutdown last week, but that compromise came with chaos in the U.S. House of Representatives. The U.S. House is now without a speaker after Kevin McCarthy was ousted. Is the unprecedented move a warning sign for democracy? And what comes next? South Dakota's lone representative, Dusty Johnson, is with us now on the phone for an update. Um, Congressman Johnson, welcome back to the program. Thanks for being here. You bet. Uh, warning sign for democracy. I'm pulling that from a headline in the Washington Post. Do you agree with that characterization? How severe in your mind is the ousting of Kevin McCarthy? Oh, that may be just a bit of hyperbole, but it, listen, the situation is not good. I mean, you've got eight hardliners who decided that they were going to destabilize the presidential line of succession and the functioning of our government. At a time when we got a lot to do. I mean, we've got a government shutdown in 40 days. Uh, the adults in the room are not allowed right now to roll up their sleeves and get to work on those things. And the problem with the eight hardliners is, Lori, they're not done. I mean, it's just never enough with these guys. Some of them are principled. Others of them, though, are interested in themselves, in attention, and in chaos. And when you've got, uh, you know, pyromaniacs, the fact that they have burned down one house does not satisfy them. It makes them hungry to go burn down a couple more. So this is not a good situation. What kinds of conversations are you having now with Democrats and with other members of your own party about how to get past this and move forward in a reasonable and timely way? It's been a little hard to have conversations with Democrats. I think there is a, uh, I mean, let's remember, 96% of Republicans understood the important stability that came with keeping Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the House. It was really the Democrats that empowered the other 4% to throw out the Speaker. Now, you may say, Dusty, isn't it a little naive to expect the Democrats to bail out Republicans? Well, I would say it's not about bailing out Republicans. It is about making sure that we uh, have stability for this country and, oh, by the way, that we're able to find two-party solutions. I mean, the final sin of Kevin McCarthy's reign, the thing that put the hardliners into the, 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 the most terrible tizzy was the fact that he had worked with Democrats to avoid a government shutdown. And I would just say to my Democratic friends, if working with uh, Democrats is a political death sentence, then we're going to get a lot less of it in the future. And so I, I'm not just frustrated with the hardliners. I'm, I'm frustrated with the Democrats that have made is going to make it even that much more difficult to find common ground in our country. 
I would say it would be hard to miss some of the um, satisfaction, maybe it's not the right word, but I'm not finding the right word, from Democrats that I think is worthy of challenging. And then they also point out that this has been a long time coming, that you can go back to you know the, the rise of the Tea Party and the young guns and the conservative movement, and some Democrats are saying this is the national con- natural consequence of allowing your party to have a voice for these people, and this is where it ends. So I think both of those things are probably happening at the same time, where maybe there's some delight, like, oh, hey, that party is self-destructing without looking in the mirror carefully. But there is also this, like, well, where does it end? So let's start there. What do you do with a faction of of people in whatever party that wants to burn down the system? How do you deal with them? You are right that uh, it's hard to find the right word in English. Uh, The Germans have done it better than we have insofar as they have the word schadenfreude, Mm -hmm. which is uh, happiness over someone else's you know, problems over their uh, over their unhappiness. There is a lot of schadenfreude in the Democratic Party and a lot of I told you so. There is too much extreme in, extremism in American politics. There is too much toxicity. I think it is uh, either naive or intentionally deceitful for people to allege that it's only on one within one party. Uh, we, I mean, we, we have had in large urban areas, we have had uh, even some violent crimes decriminalized. We have had uh, a willingness of uh, people to not hold folks accountable for smash and grabs. We have had, I think, some really, really aggressive uh, social policies that don't unite Americans, but, but push them apart. And, and we don't need to litigate those now. I would just say it doesn't seem like either American political party is very healthy right now. And I try not to take a lot of satisfaction over the dysfunction within the Democrat Party, because you know what? America deserves, America needs, the world needs our country to have two practical, functional, and sane parties. Uh, We need a sane left-of-center party. We need a sane right-of-center party. So for my colleagues that were all too excited to help Matt Gates and the other hardliners assemble the fuel light the match, and watch Republican House leadership burn to the ground, I am concerned that they have put their own partisan interests and their schadenfreude ahead of the interests of the country. What happens next? What's the pathway forward from your vantage point? As I said, we're in a bad spot, and if we don't address some of the foundational problems in the House— Electing a new speaker isn't going to do a lot. It will be the same stupid clown car with a different driver. And we really and and it's easy to blame the politicians, and I suppose it's it's easier yet for the politicians to blame the media. But a lot of this comes back to the electorate. Um, both politicians and the media are uh, prone to responding to incentives in the system, and increasingly the American electorate likes clickbait. They like anger. They like fear. They like being whipped up into a thick, uh, you know, froth. And when they send that message that that's what gets eyeballs in online news stories and that's what gets votes in an election and that's what gets small dollar donations online, then people in the system are naturally going to comport themselves to those incentives. I mean, I try not to. I know you try not to. But I think even some of our competitors, Lori, would probably be willing to accept the fact that 
you and I are a little bit more deliberate and a little bit more thoughtful than many in the, quote, marketplace. And so if we don't, as a country, figure out how to realign incentives so that a pragmatism, a practicality, a solutions-focused rather than a problem-focused uh, polity exists, I don't know that it matters who the Speaker of the House is. No. Uh, because maybe we get through this dumpster fire, but there's going to be one more and one more and one more. And I guess I'm just trying to be a voice to ask those questions now, as my colleagues are asking me who the next Speaker of the House is going to be. I'm just trying to say, let's focus on the bigger problems and what do we need to get done. Yeah. Listen, America, it's all hands on deck. And that means South Dakotans, too. That means how we have our conversations. That means the questions that we ask. That means how we go to the polls. That means how we talk about each other, how we tweet about each other. And at the risk of fearing that someone's just going to tweet out, is Dusty Johnson the next Speaker of the House? My question to you would be, you have come to this job from the beginning as a bipartisan voice um, and some people can, you know, pick issues with different things that you've said here or there. But by and large, you have led with that. You've led with I'm a policy guy from the beginning. Is Are you or someone like you, does someone like you have a chance at being the next leader? Or is that just is that just we are not even close to being there yet? How does that land with you is the question. Yeah. Yeah, it's not even theoretically possible. Um, I just... Fox News yesterday was running throughout the day a, a list of the a, pictures of eight Republicans most likely to be Speaker of the House. Uh, they had my picture included among them, in part because NBC News had, had written an article the day before that I was kind of a dark horse because I was well-respected within right. the Republican conference. But there is a thousand miles between being respected by your colleagues and having them think you'd be an effective Speaker of the House. Uh, we are not. Um, listen, I'm, I am not. The political landscape is not such that uh, I could be an effective speaker of the House today. I mean, I, I don't I don't have to like that, but I need to acknowledge it. And I think we all just need to be called to try to find the spot where we can be the most productive rather than rather than to complain about the spots where we wouldn't be as productive. Yeah. Well, Congressman Johnson, I know you have many uh, things to do today. We'll let you go and we'll uh, touch base with you again next week and see how things are progressing. We thank you very much for showing up today. Sure. Thanks, Lori. Bye. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, it sounded like banging. A hitter with the Houston Astros Major League Baseball team would step up to the plate and the subversive banging of what sounded like a trash can somewhere in the distance was actually a signal of the pitch that was about to come across the plate. And that, my friends, is a powerful piece of intel before you swing the bat in the big leagues. But it was that noise that began to dismantle the biggest cheating scandal in Major League's recent history. Ben Ryder is a reporter and correspondent with PBS Frontline. His documentary, The Astros' Edge, Triumph and Scandal in Major League Baseball, dives into the 2017 sign-stealing scandal and its legacy in baseball today. Ben Ryder is with us on the phone. Hey, Ben, welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me. You have been following uh, the Astros for a long time as a sports writer, and you're the guy that had the famous Sports Illustrated cover that said, hey, they're going to win the uh, the World Series in 2016. Everybody laughed at you. It turned out you were right. But you 
didn't know everything that you would know a few years after the 2016 World Series? When did you start thinking, hey, what did I miss in the rise of this team? And then what did you do when you felt maybe you needed to go back and find out what had happened? Right. Well, Lori, I started covering this team when they were a laughingstock of sports, yeah. when they were the worst baseball team in 50 years. Uh, that's when we made that cover prediction back in 2014 that this terrible team would win the World Series three years later. And the reason for that prediction was that it seemed to me, after having embedded with the team, um, that they were on to a new way of building a team, new ways of training, of developing players. This is going way beyond Moneyball as far as how they were applying data and analytics and technology their operations. In some ways, they're really bringing more of a Wall Street and Silicon Valley ethos into a sport that even after Moneyball remained very traditional in a lot of ways. Uh, and it worked. And they built what has proven to be not just a one-time World Series winner in 2017, but the most successful team of this era. They've just made the playoffs for the seventh straight season. They won the World Series again last year. So part of this film is explaining exactly how they created such a monster on the diamond. Uh, the other part is trying to contextualize this very troubling piece of this, which is that part of their success, at least in 2017, was based upon this cheating scandal. As talented as they were, they went over the edge and took an extra step and cheated, for lack of a better word. So it's trying to figure out why an organization like this that was so devoted to finding a competitive advantage and everything that it did went too far. So help people understand the self-awareness of the people who were involved in this. Some will talk to you, some won't. Some say I had nothing to do with the actual cheating. Others like, yeah, we did what the leadership told us to do. Mm -hmm. Broadly speaking, when you sat down with people and looked them in the eye, do they get that they did something wrong? Or do they get that something bad happened that they created here as part of their winning system? Or do they think it was just something to roll over with the tanks as they went to victory? <laughs> Ethics. A yeah. mix of both, <laughs> I would say. And it really comes down to the individual uh, and about how involved they were in hatching this scheme and carrying it out or not. Uh, yes, clearly there's an understanding that what they did was wrong, whether they were directly involved or not. But I think it's important to understand that sign stealing has been a age-old tradition in baseball. It's actually legal and always has been as long as you don't use technology to do it. And the Astros were using technology because they were kind of observing a TV screen with a camera focused in on the catcher's signs uh, that was situated behind the dugout. And that's how they knew how to signal to the batter at the plate whether a fastball was coming or whether an off-speed pitch was coming. Uh, but, but, yeah, like it's important to understand that this is a league-wide problem around this time, 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018, with all this new technology flooding into clubhouses. Um, players are driven to win and will figure out novel ways of using it, and Major League Baseball did not really regulate its use appropriately for a long time. At the same time, it's safe to say that the Astros, with edge-seeking as their priority, took it farther than anybody else.
Yeah, let's talk about that edge seeking and the bleeding edge and where the general manager says that line is in business, in Wall Street, and now in baseball. Yeah, um, well, the general manager is a man named, or former general manager, I should say, because he lost his job due to this scandal when it was finally revealed and is now running a soccer team over in Spain. And I speak to him in the, in the documentary. He did come from the business world. He had worked at McKinsey, uh, the powerful management consulting firm. I had worked at some Silicon Valley startups. So he was an outsider in baseball, and baseball is a very insular culture. So for a long time, um, basically throughout his career, a lot of the baseball firmament looked skeptically at what he was doing. And I suppose the fact that this team, despite his successes, was caught up in a cheating scandal like this confirmed for many of them uh, that they were right to, to kind of side-eye him all along. Do you have any sense, I want to ask about the fans and the legacy of this for a minute, but first, within the function of Major League Baseball, do you have any sense that um, you know, with the invention of uh, or the, the technology that's currently available, how it will leap again with AI and the continued amount of dollars that can be made from, from victories. Do you think Major League Baseball has their arms around the possibilities and what they need to do to protect the integrity of the game going forward? Certainly Major League Baseball has since this scandal and some others that happened around the same time, although not as explosive, has cracked down on this particular problem belatedly. But as far as regulation, Major League Baseball and many sports leagues always lag behind. If you look back at the steroids era, clearly there was a burgeoning problem developing 20, 25 years ago, and the league sat on its hands until they were forced due to public opprobrium and public outcry to do something about it. Same thing happened with science science scandal. I would imagine that the same thing will happen with the next generation of tech, specifically, as you mentioned, artificial intelligence and things like that, and really have the potential to undermine the integrity of the game. Uh, so, no, I don't expect them to be particularly proactive about these things. <laughs> they, they, they tend to ride them out, especially as long as the business is prospering, until yeah. they really have to act, and that often is belated. So, Ben, I'm still mad at Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire, and nobody can tell me not to be. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Which brings us to, like, you asked a question near the end of this documentary about Jose Altuva wearing a buzzer in 2019 when he cracks a monster home run, and everybody is doubting whether or not he had some kind of indication underneath his uniform of what that pitch was going to be. He's a smaller player. They weren't necessarily expecting him to, to hit at that, that ball at that time for that victory. It has sown doubt. In, and so you ask the question, was he wearing a buzzer? Um, and you get the answer, no. But it speaks to this larger thing of, like, we, n- we don't believe our eyes anymore. Like, this has a legacy for fans as well. Tell me a little bit about that. Right. Well, that's why integrity and fair play is so important. Because after news of what the Astros actually had been doing broke out. A cottage industry of conspiracy theories formed related to all the other things that people thought they were finding evidence that they might have been doing online, examining videos with a magnifying glass, things like that. Uh, And, you know, on one level, you understand it because the Astros were 
going to do this one outrageous thing. Can you put anything else past them? But, you know, it, it is certain, I would say at this point, that Jose Altuve, who is a beloved player in Houston and really the face of the team, was not using a buzzer at that incredible historic moment when he won the American League Championship Series with a walk-off home run yeah. against the Yankees' Aroldis Chapman, who throws over 100 miles an hour. But it has gone on to undermine the legacy of that moment and the history of that moment. And that is a big reason why making sure the rules are enforced and followed is important to a game like baseball or really anything you do. Yeah, it is a fantastic front line. You can stream the Astros Edge Triumph and Scandal in Major League Baseball. We've talked about like 1% of what is in <laughs> that, and for good reason, <laughs> because you want to watch the whole thing. It's at pbs.org slash frontline. It's in the PBS app. You can watch it on YouTube. You can watch it today. Ben Ryder, thanks so much for being here. We appreciate your time. Thanks, Lori. Appreciate it. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, October is National Disability Employment Awareness Month, and the month celebrates the contributions of American workers with disabilities and recognizes that everyone has the right to work and the right to build a career. Employment connects you to your community, can be an opportunity to be self-sufficient, responsible, and live with purpose and meaning. So let's meet some South Dakotans who connected with the South Dakota Department of Human Services Division of Developmental Disabilities and found that meaningful employment. Andrew Fodness works with Dakota Abilities in Sioux Falls, and he is with me here in SDPB's Kirby Family Studio. Andrew, welcome. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you. And on the phone, we have Austin Dirk at the Northern Hills Training Center in Spearfish. Austin, welcome. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for, the, thanks for your time. And Harvey Faith is with us with Ability Building Services, or ABS, in Yankton. Welcome, Harvey. Hi. Andrew, I'm going to start with you here in Sioux Falls. Tell me a little bit about your job. Um. I work at the Hilton Hampton Inn in Sioux Falls, and uh, I've been there for seven years. Um, I love it there. Uh, I got I got good friendships with my employees, and my and I love the paycheck because I get to do music and go to concerts, play video. Well, I mean, go to movies and do stuff like that. Yeah, what do you do at the Hilton Hampton? What kind of work do you do every day? I do the tables, chairs, sweep, vacuum, mop. Nice. Austin, tell me a little bit about your work. What do you do? Um, I work at uh, Baumgart in uh, Spearfish. Tell us more about that. Um, it's, uh, I help out with whatever is needed, um, putting out new inventory, Helping keep things clean, watering plants in the summer. Nice. And Harvey, what do you do for work? I work at Hyvee in Yankton. What part of the store? Keep the store clean. Yeah. Harvey, tell me a little bit about the the customers and the employees that you work with every day. 
They're friendly. Yeah. And very nice. Do you get to see the same people again and again? Do you have your favorites? No. No? It's all different in a grocery store? I just like to meet new people. Yeah. No playing favorites, huh? (laughs) No. Andrew, how about you? People come through your uh, business for, for work, for family trips. What do you enjoy about the the everyday people that you that you meet they're nice and i like i like them and a lot of them come in just for family trips and some just come in for the work there too like me yeah yeah what uh what's a good day at work for you how do you know you've had a good day at work i feel i i'm I'm not i'm not i don't slack around i love doing it i'm not lazy and i enjoy and then i I get all my work done i get a big paycheck yeah yeah. Austin, what's a good day at work for you? Um, just, uh, just knowing that um, when I'm uh, do a good day for me would be um, getting to interact with my coworkers that I work with and getting to help them with some of the stuff they need help with if I'm if I don't have enough uh, tasks to work on during my shift yeah do you have different seasons there Austin uh yeah there's a um when you first start out you go you start at seasonal, and then you um, work up, and then from seasonal you work on you um, you work up from uh, from seasonal to to um, part time to either um, to a full time employee. Okay, yeah. And that's what I, that's what I started when I first started working is I was started as a seasonal employee. When did you know you wanted to stay long-term? Like, what were you hoping for, Austin? Like, do you did you want to do this long-term? When I was, well, I started and then um I uh, I like to stay busy and I and I don't like I don't like sitting around at home and not earning money. Yeah. I mean I like earning money and getting a paycheck and having my own money. So Yeah. Totally. Harvey, um, as we move into fall and the holiday season, I bet it gets busy at Hy-Vee in Yankton. Are there days that it's hard to keep up with just how busy it can be? And Mostly Fridays. Fridays, yeah. Everybody comes at and, the same time. Holidays. <laughs> holidays, go ahead. 
and the holidays get busy. Yeah. And when they're predicting a, some kind of a snowstorm. Right. Everybody comes in at once to get their gallons of milk for whatever reason that is. Everybody yeah. needs. <laughs> uh, how do you handle, Harvey, a bad day at work? How do you handle work problems? Try to get more help. Yeah. From other employees. Right. Andrew, how about you? How do you handle a, a tough day, a hard day? I handle it pretty well. I talk to I, I talk to people or I just let it go. Yeah. But yeah, I usually talk it out. Talk it out. What makes a, a day a hard day? When you can't get your stuff done. Right. Yeah. Andrew, have you gone through a period of time when you didn't have a job that was frustrating? I know you've said you've been at the Hilton Hampton for seven years. Yeah, the COVID stopped me from working for a while, and then I went back, and I was bored and didn't didn't take very good care of myself, and now I'm trying to do better. Yeah. What do you think you bring to the job, Andrew? What do you think makes you a good employee? I show up and do all my work, and then I... And then I have a heart and soul, and I have I have I have respect for people. Yeah. Austin, how about you? What uh, what makes you a good employee in Spearfish? What do you think? Um, I'm, man, I'm a, uh, I'm a person that, I mean, I pretty much go to work unless if. The if the if I can't get anybody to take me in, or if there's a snowstorm or something like that, I'm pretty I'm pretty reliable on that aspect. Yeah, Harvey, what makes you a good part of the Yankton community? What do you think? A good worker. And been at my job for about 23 years. 23 years. That is impressive. We have been talking with Andrew Fodness uh, here in Sioux Falls. Austin Dirks has Dirk, sorry, Austin. Austin Dirk has joined us from Spearfish, and Harvey Faith has been with us from Yankton. We've been talking about a program through the South Dakota Department of Human Services Division of Developmental Disabilities about connecting communities with employees and employees with jobs and uh, everybody finding that sense of uh, work ethic and contribution and purpose and self-sufficiency. So, um, Andrew, thank you so much for being with me today. I really enjoyed getting to know you. Yeah, you're welcome. Austin, thank you as well. Come back again. Yep. Harvey, thanks so much. We appreciate your hard Thank work. Thank you.
You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, the USDA has made $3 billion in funding available for agricultural producers and forest landowners nationwide. That will help these parties participate in voluntary conservation programs and adopt climate-smart practices in fiscal year 2024. It's all part of President Biden's Investing in America agenda. So how can South Dakotans participate in the programs and receive funding? And will those programs find funding in the days ahead as Congress grapples with a leaderless House? We're going to find out some of that with the help of USDA NRCS, Assistant State Conservationist for Programs, Jeff Vanderwilt. Jeff, welcome. Thanks for being here. You bet. Thanks for having me, Lori. Give us the big picture here of the, of the investment and what it is targeted to do. What's its purpose? So the uh, Inflation Reduction Act bill um, authorized the Natural Resources Conservation Service to take almost $20 billion of money over the next uh, five years and invested in conservation practices to help farmers and ranchers get conservation on their ground that will help store more carbon in the soil. All right. So, so you, that's you, what, um, go ahead, sorry. You want to choose the things that are going to work and then get the assistance to implement them. So tell us what kinds of, of programs this is for, like what specific practices can be used in South Dakota that would access this funding. Sure. So here in South Dakota, um, here in FY24, we received $37 million of Inflation Reduction Act funding to uh, implement our Environmental Quality Incentives Program and our Conservation Stewardship Program. And those two programs um, work with farmers and ranchers to do things like prescribed grazing, adding livestock water and fences uh, to create that infrastructure to do a better job of grazing management on our rangelands. Uh, we also do a lot of different crop uh, cropland practices to help um, store more carbon in our cropland soils, like uh, uh, assistance with reducing tillage uh, and changing crop rotations to add more or different crops to the rotation that will help store more carbon in the soil. Um, and we also help with cover crops. Uh, you know, cover crops have become really kind of popular in the state following some of our small grains and even sometimes we have uh, producers planting it in row with with corn as well in order to help draw nutrients up out of the out of the soil and make them available for plants and then taking carbon out of the atmosphere and putting that back into the soil or back into residue that eventually decomposes into the soil we have probably 50 to 60 different practices that uh, producers could come in and apply for. Are you finding that most um, are, are people who've already been doing something in this un, under this umbrella of conservation practices and they're ready to expand? Or are you finding people coming in and saying, I, I, you know, I need to know so much more about this and whether it's good for my operation? What, what are you kind of seeing on the ground? Sure. Well, we, we see both, to be honest with you, and, and our two programs that I mentioned, EQIP and CSP, um, both kind of serve both of those clientele. Um, our EQIP program really is geared towards helping new
newer customers to NRCS, understand our programs, get some of the infrastructure in place, and then our conservation stewardship program really helps them improve their management. So once they've mm. done some of the equip practices to get things in place, the management then becomes easier. Now, that's not to say that you have to do equip before you can do CSP, but those two programs really do complement each other and help folks get used to working with, with NRCS and with you know, the federal government as a whole if they've never done that before. So some people are concerned, and I don't expect you to have a crystal ball for what happens with a government shutdown or leadership in Congress. However, the question I want to ask you is about the perception of either instability or money that I would have access to and then I wouldn't if a new administration comes or if the government shuts down, will this program keep going? I don't want to get involved in something that's not a, you know, a stable thing for my operation. If people are having those sort of low-key concerns, how do you address that with them? Yeah, you know, um, the politics does does have a tendency to to get in the way of us uh, getting good conservation on the ground here in South Dakota. But here's the thing about our programs. Um, Once Congress allocates dollars to our agency, we have those dollars to spend. And we put them into contracts or what we call, you know, basically an obligating document that then sets that money aside for that producer to implement those practices over the next, oh, anywhere from three to seven or eight years, let's say, um, those dollars can't go away once once we've got that contract in place. So the biggest issue for producers that would come in now is, is basically if the government would shut down, you know, our employees would not be there to assist them in working on a conservation plan for one of our programs or helping them get get their practices implemented and then getting them reimbursed. Once once the government would open back up, uh, you know, then our employees would be back and we, of course, would be playing catch up from the time lost. But right. um, luckily we have a really good dedicated staff here in South Dakota that would work really hard to get things caught back up and get our producers back on the right track. Any final thoughts that you would add about uh, forestry, agroforestry, wetland restoration, something in that neighborhood that maybe people haven't thought of that this would also apply to them? You bet. Um, we Well, I'll, I'll touch on all those. Um, so with the forestry side of things, uh, we do uh, have a state forester and we have several practices that uh, would help somebody that owns any kind of forest land in the state. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we've got a couple of easement programs, uh, one that deals specifically with, with wetlands and wetland restoration. And we've got some folks scattered across the state that would love to help some folks if they have some interest in, in doing any kind of wetland restoration work on their operation. And our last easement program, the Agricultural Land Easement Program, you know, if uh, that program is designed to help folks that want to conserve their their operation or their ranch or their farm in perpetuity and make sure that that farm or that ranch doesn't get turned into a strip mall or a bunch of mini ranchettes or something like that. Um, we, we can help them with those types of conservation issues as well. So we have, we have extra money because of that Inflation Reduction Act. 
Um, our staff uh, is ready to go and, and willing to help, and we we just need some folks to come in the door. And kind of the big thing is our we have a batching date where we uh, take all the applications, and that batching date is November 3rd. And so anybody that comes into our office and gets an application signed by November 3rd, uh, we'll work with them here throughout FY24 and, and see if we can get them a contract and help them get some conservation on the ground. All right. We'll put some links up on our website. Anything you want to leave people with where they can go directly to you and find more information? Uh, you bet. If you uh, if you Google the Natural Resources Conservation Service here in South Dakota, you'll find that uh, we have an office in just about every county in the state. Stop in, talk to our folks there, and uh, they'll take you down the conservation path and help you with the goals for your operation. Jeff Vanderbilt, thank you so much. We appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me, Lori. I appreciate it. We'll talk to you again. South Dakota Symphony Orchestra returns to the stage this weekend, and one of the boldest orchestras in America kicks it off with one of the boldest symphonies of all time. We have uh, Delta David Geyer, maestro, music director, uh, conductor, 20 years now with the South Dakota Symphony Orchestra, 20th season, right? Still putting up with me, yeah. Still <laughs> stopping by the studio. Welcome back. Thanks. You had a busy summer, and you're you're ready to go. Yeah, indeed. I saw on social media a little more work with the next phase of the Lakota Music Project. Yes. Do you want to mention what's happening there? Well, we as we always do, uh, we uh, the, the academies take place uh, for Lakota and Dakota high schoolers over the summer, and then in September is when our our musicians go and to uh, to Sisseton, and they go West River, and they rehearse with these students and perform their works and take it to their high schools. And so that was, yeah. that was a big deal. Um, but also we had a jam session uh, with, the, with the Creekside singers and Brian Akipa and some other Lakota uh, singers and dancers uh, to imagine the next phase of Lakota Music Project. We had two composers on board and filmed it and captured it all and now these composers will take that experience and go off and write music for us to play together with the drumming group and cedar flute player and so on and so forth. Just a fascinating thing. It has to be so gratifying to be in the room, to think of the friendships and the trust that has built, and then also to start imagining and envisioning what's next. Yeah, this is yeah. phase four of the Lakota Music Project, which means which means new music, new tours. It's it's great. We're right. very happy about it. So let's talk about uh, the upcoming season opener. You always start out with the Star Spangled Banner, and then, mm. then this year you're also playing uh, Banner yes. by Jesse Montgomery. Jesse Montgomery, thank you, which is a, a very interesting backstory. Tell us a little bit about uh, how this piece was originally commissioned and why mm. you wanted to play it at your season opener. 
Well, I mean, I've been looking at it for a while. Uh, Jesse, we played Jesse's music before. Yeah. Uh, she's composer in residence, the Chicago Symphony, a young African American woman. And this piece, Banner, is her take on the Star Spangled Banner as an African American woman. Uh, and it's not a negative thing. It's not. It's not necessarily a taking of the knee, but it's a reimagining, and it incorporates other anthems like "Lift Every Voice and Sing." You know, uh, for instance, is is a part of this eight-minute piece. Uh, and so, um, so it'll be a reflective moment uh, for that, and then we'll follow it with uh, with another African American composer. Yeah, tell me about programming decisions, and then we'll get to the Beethoven a little bit. Yeah. But starting out with that, I know your pre-concert talk is with the uh, leader of the South Dakota African American History Museum, the curator. Hmm. And so you're bringing these black voices into the concert hall to kick things off with. Uh, talk about that plan, hmm. um, why you want to do that, why that is so important to the South Dakota Symphony Orchestra's overall mission. Well, I mean, this is part of our Bridging Cultures program, which began with the Lakota Music Project over 15 years ago and then has gone on to uh, expand and involve, well, you know, last spring we, we had, uh, you know, South Asian composer. We, we uh, engaged the South Asian community and Chinese and Hispanic and so on. We've done this for years and years. Um, have not done that much with the African-American community in Sioux Falls yet. So this was, yeah, very intentional um, uh, to to program these pieces. Um, but also, like, what do you put with Beethoven's Fifth Symphony? Like, you know, you can do just, just a program with, you know, a Mozart concerto on the first half, but it's always more interesting to me how music plays off against each other, how contemporary voices play against, you know, against standard repertoire. Um, but then specifically, I was wondering, what, is it, what does it mean for an African-American to write a symphony? Because Beethoven looms large over anybody who writes a symphony. It's been that way for 200 years. Mm. Um, like people in, in, the in the 19th century were scared to death about writing, particularly a Ninth Symphony. And so many composers died after writing their Ninth Symphony. It's just a litany of them. So, but but anybody who comes to this form pace of yourself? symphony. Is that, the, well, is that the rule? Pace yourself yeah, throughout yeah. your life if you're... <laughs> or, or you could play. be Mahler and try and cheat it and write one and not call, in the middle and not call it a symphony. <laughs> right. Oh, so right. I looked up Aldolphus Hailstork. Yeah. I had not heard of him. Right. Lots of people have. This is talk about an American composer and what it takes to sort of gain that recognition to not mm. only have your music performed, commissioned, but also to have everyday people start to know your name. Right. Well, uh, I mean, it, it's difficult for anybody as a composer, very difficult to, to break in, to get your music played, you know, to, to, to have, you know, 100 people on a stage being all being paid to play your piece. That, that's it's a privilege, right? So it's, it's highly, highly competitive. Um, and then, of course, we've had these marginalized voices of composers of color and women, which we're, you know, I, I think, you know, we're really trying to remedy that now as an industry. Mm. You know, we're trying to do that. So you come to a composer like Jessie Montgomery. Well, she's on the rise, you know, so you want to contribute to that. But then Adolphus Hailstork is over 80 years old. Oh, yes. I didn't know that. Yeah, okay. and he's he's heard mostly yeah. on the upper levels. 
Chicago Symphony, New York Philharmonic. Like they're very familiar with his work. Um, you know, smaller orchestras like ours generally don't play his work. It's really difficult, I have to say that. But it's also fabulous music. Um, it's interesting talking to him about you know, being a black composer and everything. And, and do I hear, you know, uh, you know, a little jazziness in here and so on sure. and so forth. He's like, no, man. No. <laughs> I was like, no. I, I said, what does it mean for a black composer to write a symphony? And he said, well, writing a symphony, why not? <laughs> That's all he said. <laughs> it's like, okay, I'm just going to take Period. that. Period, yes. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's wonderful, and you can definitely hear his heritage coming yes. through in the music, but uh, it's a wonderful piece. All right, and then Beethoven's Fifth, it's all Saturday, October 7th at 7.30 p.m. Central Time. SDPB does the live stream mm-hmm. um, on that, so no matter where you're at in the state, you can participate in that. This is just the first of many conversations we're going to have about this orchestra and the music we're going to hear this season. So Delta David Geyer, thanks for stopping by. Thank you. That's our show for today. We hope that it served you tomorrow on the program. We'll preview the upcoming session of the United States Supreme Court. Mike Thompson is with us. From all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Lori Walsh. Thank you for listening. <laughs>